Hi, my name is Chris Brennan, and you're listening to the Astrology Podcast. This episode is recorded on Thursday, February 15th, 2018, starting at 11.21 a.m. and in Denver, Colorado, and this is the 143rd episode of the show. For more information about how to subscribe to the podcast and help support the production of future episodes by becoming a patron, please visit theastrologypodcast.com slash subscribe. In this episode, I'm going to be talking with astrologer Kelly Surtees, and we're going to be taking some questions that were submitted by listeners of the podcast over the past few days. Uh, hey, Kelly, how's it going? Hey, Chris. Good, thanks. How are you? Uh, really good. Uh, I just did a lecture yesterday for Valentine's Day on Zodiac releasing from the lot of Eros and timing peaks in your love life, and I'm excited to record this episode with you today because I'm a little bit behind this month, so this is actually the first episode of the month. Cool. No, yeah. I'm happy to be back. I was traveling a lot last month, so I missed hanging with you guys more in the podcast space. So I'm happy to uh, to be here catching up this month. Yeah, there were definitely some people that noticed. A lot of people were asking where you were for our, the Saturn and Capricorn episode. So, and, and a few people asked for your thoughts on that. Have, you've written some stuff on Saturn and Capricorn, right? I've written a little bit. I haven't done my ebook this year because I've had other projects going on. Yeah, Saturn and Cap. Well, I mean, on the one hand, it just feels a bit more calm in general out in the astrological space because mm -hmm. we've got Saturn now back in an Earth sign. Uh, and what I'm noticing in conversations with clients is a lot of that almost like coming back down, putting our feet on the Earth. Not that the problems have solved themselves, but now we've got sort of more of a realistic sense of it. So it's going to be a like, – there's definitely collective things that need that larger restructuring, but I think it's from an individual perspective, there is some opportunity here to kind of get organized, to get grounded, and to be practical. I mean, Saturn and Capricorn are both quite frugal, conservative energies. Not that I want people to be driven by fear, but I think having a healthy respect for the passage of time can really help us moderate some of what are otherwise or can be excessive or impulsive choices. So, yeah, just a little bit off the that's top a great, of my head, That's I a great, uh, great uh, sort of concise summary. I like that. Cool. <laughs> All right. Uh, so let's see. Before we get started, um, announcements. Speaking of you know, what we were just talking about, you've got a lot of new stuff going, right, in terms of uh, offerings and things you're teaching and things like that? Yeah, I do. I just in February launched my Stellar Insights monthly offering, which is some exclusive video content that is available to subscribers only. Very similar to how Patreon works, except we're, we're running it just through my website. So you pop over to Kelly's Astrology and click on the Stellar Insights uh, link or the, there's a big picture. You can't miss it. There's like this psychic hair, you know, celestial hair. You'll It'll seem familiar. And uh, you just sign up and yeah, once a month on the first of the month, there are five videos released with Astro Insights for the month ahead. So that's really exciting, totally new for me, uh, but I do enjoy the video delivery method. So we're just testing that out. So far, we've had a really good response. We've had people loving the content, the accessibility and the tips on how to apply, you know, what's happening that month to your own chart. So there's always a couple of DIY tips in there as well. And then because February is the month of love and everybody's talking about love, um, the webinar I'm doing this month is on Progressed Venus, which will be, um, I think it's February the 24th, Saturday at the end of the month. Um, so people can sign up either through my website or Astrology University with the lovely Tony. Awesome. Brilliant. Uh, that's exciting. And yeah, I definitely, we're talking about, and hopefully we can maybe do a, a follow-up show on secondary yes. progression sometime soon. 
I know, and I'm happy we're not doing that today because I really have to write something on secondary progressions. And, you know, if we do our show in the next few weeks, I'm not necessarily going to be able to write something by then, but hopefully it'll give me a bit more of a kick in the pants. Because sure. it's a technique I've I've lectured on since. It's funny because, you know, when we were, we were deciding what topic to do for today, I realized my very first official conference lecture was on secondary progressions 10 years ago, almost to the month. So, wow. yeah. Wow. And was that at an FAA conference? Yeah, at the Sydney conference. It was January 2008 and I was nervous as all get out. And then I think Richard Tarnas was in the room and then Lynn Bell came in, which did not help with my nerves in any way, shape or form. Um, but it was it was fun. It was like an extension of teaching, which I'd been doing, but just with sort of more seriousness. Yeah. Right. Right. Good times. Um, yeah. All right. And in terms of announcements before we get started, the only thing yeah. I have is, like I said yesterday, I recorded and presented a lecture on timing peak periods in your relationships and love life using Zodiac releasing from the lot of Eros. I've been meaning to, that's a technique I've been researching since 2005, and I've done different incarnations of, but I haven't had a a standard recording available on my website. So now I will, by the time this episode is up, I should have uh, that recording available on my website for sale at chrisbrennanastrologer.com. So just go there and you should be able to find it in the audio recording section if you're interested in purchasing that lecture. Uh, All right, so why don't we get into it? So it's been a few months since I did my last Q&A. You and I actually did the first Q&A ever, I think like a year, maybe two years ago, actually. (laughs) It probably Uh, was two years ago, how quickly time's going by. (laughs) Yeah, that's kind of crazy to think about. So, uh, But it's been a while since I had you on for one, and and I'm really glad that you're joining me today because I think we've got a really good spread of questions. I put out a call for questions a few days ago for for from listeners of the podcast, and we just got inundated with a ton of them. So a uh, few notes. So one, unfortunately, we're not going to be able to get to all of the questions, obviously, because we got just too many. Um, two, we're going to probably summarize some of them because some of them were a little bit long, and I probably should have noted that in order to be able to read them in their entirety, they need to be relatively short on the air. And we're going to save also, we got a bunch of questions on secondary progressions, but we're going to save those for a future episode on that topic rather than answering them here. So with that said, um, why, don't we, why don't we jump into it? Cool. All right. So do you want to maybe want to start by reading our first question? Totally. Um, this was actually one of my favorite questions of all the ones we got. Uh, should I say the name of who it's from? I think so because most of these were submitted on Facebook and pretty much in all a public of them. Forum. So I don't think anybody and nobody said specifically that they didn't want their name mentioned. There was only one or two people that used initials. So yeah, why don't we go ahead and give credit to the questioners? Okay, cool. So Jessica Marek is asking, when did you know you were ready to start practicing astrology professionally? Um, for instance, charging other people than friends or families for their charts. And second part to the question is, what jobs did you both have in the meantime while learning astrology? So, I don't know. I love this question. Chris, what about you? When did you know you were ready to start doing consults? Um, I don't think anybody ever like knows that they're ready. I think I did start reading charts. I think everybody starts by reading the charts of friends and family. But at one point, I did start like actively trying to make the transition by pushing myself to read strangers charts and so i did a, a chart reading for 
uh, a woman once at a, at like a party. It was like a, like a house party that I was at and I was probably in my late teens or early twenties. <laughs> you were about 15 probably. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I'd been studying it for four, four or five years at that point. So, and it actually went really well. So the fact that it went relatively well gave me some confidence that I was heading in the right direction. I wasn't paid for it, but that was the first sort of person I remember doing a, a chart for that was a stranger and having it go relatively well in terms of being able to describe their life and their personality without knowing them at all. And yeah. then uh, I think it was when I moved to Seattle and I was like a broke college student attending Kepler that I um, started doing readings and I did one for like a coworker. And then eventually I was running a MySpace forum and people started asking me for consultations. And I, I was doing them as written consultations at first, where I'd write everything out in like a huge, what turned oh into like a 20 so page yeah. word, word document. Um, because you think that you have more control over saying exactly what you want to say and, and thinking everything out ahead of time. But written readings are, are just terrible because they take so much time and it becomes a huge time sink. So even though sometimes people start with that, eventually everybody moves away from that into more of a dialogue type consultation, I think. Totally. I have actively resisted doing written readings over my years of consult. I do understand from the client's experience, it is nice to have a written record, mm -hmm. but I there's a part of me that's very business oriented and always has been. And I, I figured out very early on the amount of hours it was going to take to write up a reading versus the time it would take just to talk that info through. You know, I, I would say to people, I have to triple or quadruple my fee if you want me to write this rather than even just record it for you. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, so you, but, but it is, I think you make a really good point that it's a really common starting place for people. Yeah. And in the meantime, I, I, when I was living in Seattle, I was actually working as a barista for Starbucks. So I was making making coffee and that was my day job before I fully made the transition into doing astrology, which took a few years. Totally. So that was your job that you that you did while you were studying. Yeah. Um, I got it while I was working in, while well, I was going to school uh, and studying at Kepler. And I was off. And then eventually I made the transition to doing consultations full-time for a few years while I was living in Maryland. And then I went back to that for a little bit in 2008, 2009 when I moved back to Colorado. But then in 2010, I organized um, an NCGR pre-conference workshop that was called um, From Ancient to Postmodern Astrology. And it was supposed to like align. I had speakers of all, from all of the major astrological traditions to each give 30 or 40-minute talks about what the best pieces of their traditions were and I had like Rob Hand and like Rick Tarnas and Demetra and you know this amazing lineup and it was like a huge success in February of 2011 at a conference I think in Baltimore or Cambridge yep and I came back from that and then I had to go back to my day job like making coffee and I was so depressed that I just decided one day I was like this is that's it like I have to quit and either make it or break it as an astrologer right now and I emailed Lisa and I said, I think I'm quitting my job today. Or I think I'm quitting my job. And she said, when? And I think now I'm quitting right now. Like, I'm doing it now. I'm just giving yeah. you a quick heads up. <laughs> so, and that was in 2010. And then I just scraped by and there was a, a, few, a few, a couple really um, sparse years that were kind of tough. But uh, eventually through just pushing and, and trying to keep developing my craft and also the business side of things, eventually I made it. 
That's fantastic. And you know what strikes me about your story, Chris, which is not that dissimilar to mine, is that our stories as beginner or startup astrologers are no different from the stories of startup therapists or counselors or psychologists or uh, massage therapists or naturopaths, anyone, even lawyers, if they're going into private practice and they're looking to start up their own thing, their own gig, mm-hmm. you know, if you're in a service-based business, which is what we are as astrologers, you know, the startup phase is lean. The first few years right. for me, uh, like I worked, uh, I had a part-time admin job, like answering phones. Okay. And it was so boring that I used to just sit there writing astrology shit while I was doing it. Right. Um because I, I needed to pay my rent and I just worked literally like this nine to 12 or nine to one shift right in the heart of Sydney, um, you know, in the CB, the Sydney CBD, which is the Australian version of like a downtown, you know, right near Wynyard Station. But then in the, but that, that the money that I earned at that time from that Monday to Friday part time that paid my rent, which meant I had the afternoons and then the weekends to be trying to find clients essentially. And one thing that was a little different for me was that I, um, I also, my, I was self-employed for two reasons in the beginning, because I also trained as a remedial or therapeutic massage therapist. Okay. So that was how I'd, I'd been studying astrology since I was probably 10 or 11 years old, but it was when I finished high school and went off to nature care college, which is this big natural therapies college in Sydney used to be bigger than what it is now. And I was doing my massage therapy training. And when I was signing up for that, they had an elective course that you could take in astrology. And that was how I found my first astrology training program. And I ended up studying with that teacher in Sydney for nearly three years. And then, you know, it was like the question was, you know, when did you know you were ready to start practicing? And I laugh when I went to think about how I would answer that because as soon as I could, I was so enthusiastic that as soon as I had enough maybe confidence or just like, okay, I know enough that I'm going to be able to help someone. I was out of the gate. So you okay. know, and I, so you I no trepidation or anything. I don't think so. And I feel like that sounds really arrogant when I think back to my 22 year old self now, right. um, because I left a very stable sort of corporate job to, you know, I had done my massage training. I was just going to be self-employed and I was going to get massage clients and I was going to get astrology clients and I was going to be my own boss and do work that I was really passionate about. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, so when that enthusiasm to share overcame the fear of not knowing enough, that was kind of a sweet spot for me. But I do notice in the teaching that I do nowadays, a lot of people get stuck at that transition point. So I think that's where this person's, where Jessica's question is coming from is, how do you know when you're ready? Right. And I think you made a really good point, Chris, is that you never have this thing inside you that says, I know and I know everything, I can do this. But it's more like, do you know enough to offer something that's helpful? Because right. the, there comes a point where you've learned all you can about astrology from a book or from a teacher, and you need to actually get out there and experience the nuances and the lived manifest expression of astrology, which is what happens in people's lives with your clients. So there's no magical place that you get to that that you feel no nerves, essentially. I was nervous as shit when I did my first reading and I wrote pages of notes and I went into that consult with 20 reference books around me to mm-hmm. make sure that I wouldn't miss something. And, of course, what you realise is that you speak to about one and a half of those 20 pages of notes, but it's the client loves that because that's what 
they were looking for. It's the, the particular bit of your prep that speaks to their questions on the day. Uh, and so, yeah, I think it's just, it's, it's such an exciting thing to be on the other side of that, that anything we can do that will help people. It feels like you're taking a bit of a leap of faith and your leap of faith is in your own ability to just be with your client and share what you can and to trust that that's going to be appropriate for that point in time, I guess. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, the the two issues are that one, astrology is a lifelong study and nobody ever stops learning something. Nobody ever <laughs> fully masters it in the sense that there's nothing else that they have to learn. And if that's true, and once you realize that, that means you just honestly need to know more than your client does. And as long as you do, then you have something you can offer them in terms of your insight and looking at their chart and hopefully being able to share something interesting with them about their their life or or help them talk totally. about their concerns. You, and that's the thing. I think anyone who's taken a six-week or a 10-week beginner astrology class probably knows more than most people out there. And I'm not advocating that all you need to do is take a 10-week beginner class and then you're an astrologer. But you make the best point there, Chris, that you just have to know more than your clients so that you're sharing with them what you've learned and to be aware that you're still learning and the people that are further down the path from you are going to keep sharing to you and you just share it behind you. And then those people, it's like a bucket with you know water in it and you're all just passing it along. Kind right. Of thing. Exactly. Yeah. And that's what the entire astrological tradition is and, and always has been in some sense. But as a result of that, sometimes it's good just to thrust, to throw yourself into it and start doing it, even if you're just doing readings for free, or sometimes people do very, they charge very little initially, like, you know, even like $5 or $10, you're still being paid for astrology. And that's, that's something that's a starting point, or some people do a sliding scale, uh, and so on and so forth. So just sort of ease into it is, is the best advice and do what you have to do in the meantime so that you can do astrology on the side, uh, whatever. Absolutely. I think that's a very practical move is that you will have to do something on the side. Anybody who's setting up a business who hasn't got a chunk of savings or an inheritance behind them has to do something else part-time to pay the bills while the business establishes itself. And uh, there was something else you just said that I wanted to comment on and I forgot. Uh, I mean, one thing is just getting experience because one of the things is like, one of the big secrets is that the astrologer is is learning during the consultation. I don't want to say just as much, but they're also learning every consultation that they do. And that's one of the reasons why you have to throw yourself into it and start doing it because you need to start getting that experience at some point. Even if you're just doing the consultations for free, there's something about that dynamic of what happens and the things you learn by experience in a consultation that's really crucial and important to your growth and development as an astrologer. Absolutely, because there are myriad nuances of the way some types of aspect patterns can manifest. And the only way that nobody can ever sit down and write a book about the many, the 2000 nuances of a square aspect, for instance. But if you are lucky enough to talk to 20 different clients that have major square aspects in their chart, you will learn something unique from each of those clients about the nuances. And actually, I remember the point that I forgot. It was the payment point. This was something else I've noticed when working with trainee astrologers is, and I don't think it's unique to astrology again, it's when you go into self-employment. It's very weird to say to someone, I'm going to do this thing for you and then you're going to pay me for it. And getting comfortable with that process of asking for someone to give you money 
if is a big part of the the experience. You know, if you think about it, if you have a job working at Starbucks or working in an office, you fill out some paperwork on your first day and every two weeks or every month money just appears in your bank account. You never actually talk to someone about the mm-hmm. money again. And to go from that experience to then sitting down with someone and saying, yeah, actually, I'm going to need you to give me something for what I'm going to do with you is all part of building that internal muscle around you really living the truth that your astrology has value. And so I do encourage students, even if you start with a trade, like I'm going to do the reading, but can you bake me a cake or obviously I have a sweet tooth, or can you take me out to lunch? Um, or can you, even if it's 5 or $20 or in America, you've got the single dollar bills, what you're looking to participate in is that exchange of I'm doing this and this is what's coming as a result. Once you get comfortable with that exchange, it doesn't matter whether it's a $1 bill or a $100 bill, you've now created a pathway within you where you can have that um, discussion or that exchange. So they're the different ways I think, yeah, start at a low rate, get comfortable charging, um, and just keep building on it from there. Yeah, definitely. And well, there's one or two other things. I mean, we could actually start, keep talking about this. I know. I feel like this has time, been a but, big question. <laughs> yeah, uh, which is funny because I was originally going to say we're only going to do like a few minutes per question so we can plow through them all. That often becomes an issue on these episodes because we get such good questions. Yeah. Um, but what was I going to say? The main point is just, yeah, that you have to start doing it at some point. Uh, one of the things that's tricky is that as an astrologer, especially very early on, be, one of the points you made is like if you have a day job, you you know you show up and you know approximately how much you're going to make per week or per month. But as an astrologer, mm-hmm. you don't. And that's one of the scariest things, especially early on while you're still establishing yourself, is how erratic it can be because you never know when you're going to get a client or consultation or what have you. And therefore, your your income can fluctuate, um, you know, up and down monthly or weekly. Absolutely, and that that still happens now. You know, mm-hmm. even for me, because I do, Chris and I and Austin have been talking. I do have a very heavily focused client consulting part of my business. That's that's how I earn the both the bulk of my income, and th- that's definitely. I think it took between three to five years to stabilize before I could sort of reliably say I'm consistently going to get about this many readings a week. Mm-hmm. And I always sort of say I was a bit blessed because I was doing, I had my massage practice as well. Now, the difference there is that people wanting a therapeutic massage will come every week or every month for a massage. So you can more quickly build up that consistent clientele. One of the the disadvantages in the astrological space is that many clients will think about a reading maybe once a year, um, which is appropriate. And if you're playing the long game, that's great. But in the first few years, if you've got, if you do three great readings, the two ways you can benefit from that are 12 months from now, those three people come back to you. Or if you're really lucky, those three people will actually tell three people each. And that's kind of what, you know, if you are thinking about a marketing side of it, you do want to encourage those word of mouth referrals because that is gold. But yeah, in terms of the repetition with astrology, it does take a while. And even when did you make the transition to doing just astrology? Oh, yeah, that's a good question. Um, on my Saturn return, so okay. no astrology in play at all there. Uh, yeah, so I had, and I, I shouldn't be sort of shy about saying this, I had a really good year. Um, Jupiter was also in my 10th house, so that was great. I was, you know, I hit a great target in terms of income level, but I was working so much between the massage and the clients and the astrology and the teaching. It was just something had to give. And so I decided to retire as a massage therapist. 
And yeah, so at 29, that's when I, and it felt like another massive leap of faith because the massage business was a really good chunk of money. And I had to sort of stop that. And that once you stop that and you're self-employed, there's no benefits that pay or sick leave that's accrued that comes back to you. Just stop it and the money doesn't come in anymore. But I worked it out. I was like, okay, I need maybe an extra two or three astrology clients a week. And that's going to make do. And you just adjust a lot. You know, when you are self-employed, you get very used to working out the baseline income that you need to pay your bills. And then when your income's here, you know, you've got that cream and you can do extras, but you you will occasionally drop back down into your baseline. doesn't mean you failed, but it just means you need to be adjusted. You don't want to be paying rent in that cream or mortgage in that. You want to be able to keep your costs, your essential costs as low as possible so that you can manage those fluctuations. So, 29 was 10 years ago now. Awesome. So, yeah. Well, it's good to hear that means, I mean, you would have switched just a few years before I did to doing it full time. So, yeah. Sort of vaguely similar paths and very sense. similar, absolutely, yeah. Because as much as I say I was self-employed, I was still doing something else in addition to the astrology. So, yeah, yeah. So okay. it was two thousand and eight, two thousand and eight, two thousand and seven. There about two thousand and seven. Yeah, okay. got yeah. it. And you were t- um, so that's that's the first question, Chris. Is yeah. There so any question more? <laughs> one down. Only twenty or thirty minutes into 25, the episode. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Good job. Uh, um, and the next question is almost a follow-on from this question, if you want to yeah. do that one. Why don't we? So this is from Sheila Rower, who ha- always asks really good questions, and usually we end up getting at them in the Q&A episode. She had, a f- I think, two, but this is the one that was connected to the previous one where she says, she asks, what do you ask clients prior to a session or at the start of a session in order to set appropriate expectations um, and then she says parenthetically that sometimes clients come with the idea that astrologers are, are like psychics. Uh, so yeah, what do you ask clients prior to a session or what sort of, what's your, do you have like a statement on your website that says what information you need from them or anything else? Yeah. So these days I've got a bit of an automation um, scheduling system going. So once clients have organized their receipt and they've got their payment done, they get the access to the booking form And that booking form asks them for their birth details, which is the absolute essential, of course. Um, It also has info about the Zoom link and how we'll actually connect. And then there's a notes section where they can add in any info or questions that they have. And I don't, it's not like a forced thing. You know, you can leave it blank and some clients leave it blank. Other clients have some very specific questions that they pop in there. Um, So that's all that's collected before the session itself for me. But I always ask Always. And this maybe goes back to my massage therapy days when you would have to ask people like, what's up with you today? Or, you know, what's going on? I would ask them, you know, a variation of this type of question. You know, do you have any questions, topics, themes, or issues that you want to make sure we focus on together today? Um, And because what I'll say to them, especially if they're a new client, we have so much information, even if we've got a 90-minute extended session I could just talk for the next three days on their chart if I'm going to do everything. So I just like to let them know that this is their time and I want to make sure that I meet their needs as best I can. And so at that point, they'll let me know I want to talk about career or relationships or sometimes they're more specific and they'll be like a three-minute sort of explanation of a very specific situation they're dealing with. If at any point I feel like what they're asking for is beyond the scope of what I do, I'll tell them right then and there. And, you know, sometimes clients will be well-versed in astrology and they'll they'll be like, oh, I really wanted to check out my Chiron return or something. 
which is not a technique that I really work with these days. So I'll just say that, look, I don't really work with that planet, but I can definitely give you information about, you know, the year ahead based on these other techniques, um, if that's of interest to you. So it is, I think Sheila makes a really good point because particularly for new clients, they have no idea what to expect. They don't know anything about what is involved in astrology. One of the biggest comments I get at the end of a session with a new client, I had no idea that astrology was so detailed and I just really had no idea what to expect. And look, maybe that's a comment on my marketing or what have you, but I just think astrology is sort of this weird thing that it is hard to explain what happens in a session because it's so unique for each person. And I think the way my clients refer their friends and families, they just say, I had a really good, I got a lot out of this session, go and have one. You'll get something, you'll get whatever you need kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't have a detailed form, um, but I always do. And even if the clients put a lot of detail in the booking form, when we get to the session, which might be a month or two months later, um, I will just say, this is what you put on your form. Any changes on that, anything you want to add to it? Because of course, when there's a bit of a time lag, things can shift. Um, what about you? When you were doing your readings, did you ask for a lot of info beforehand? Um, I would just ask in general if there's any uh, topics or specific areas that they want to focus on. Primarily, just because because I know you know sometimes there's some people that they want to be impressed. Either either they want to explicitly test the astrologer, or mm-hmm. they want to be impressed by the astrologer's ability to figure out their life or personality or what's going on with them or what have you. And that's a sort of thing unto itself, but that makes things much more challenging. And one of the issues I try to explain to people is just there's different techniques that I would look at and and prepare with before the we talk prior to the consultation. And if I know ahead of time, even not the specifics, but just generally, like if you want to focus on career or if you want to focus on relationships or if you want to focus on something else, you have a health issue that's going on or something like that, then I would apply a specific technique in each of those instances. In in my case, I would use Zodiac releasing from the lot of spirit for career mm. or releasing from Eros for relationships. And one of the issues that I had when doing consultations is I still had needed about an hour of prep time because I would do the Zodiac releasing periods and put them in a Word document and I would write notes next to all of the major ones for like the first hundred years of the native's life so that it was clear that most of what I was going to say in the consultation was already sort of noted a little bit in the notes, so that even if I was asking them for a topic ahead of time, it's not like I'm cold reading them or something like that. Yeah, so that's that's the most typically I would ask. And, and some clients you know, have a specific thing they want to focus on and others don't, and it's fine either way. But the 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 psychic part that she refers to is important because some people assume that you can just read their mind and know mm. what they want to focus on when there may be a bunch of different things going on in their chart at the same time but there's only one or a few of them that really re- relate to the main thing that's on their mind that they want to talk about and unless they express that ahead of time you might not end up focusing on it as much as they would like which can make them feel, you know, not as content with the session as they could have been if you really just focused in on the main thing from the start. That's exactly it, Chris, because I think the key is that we are here to sort of serve and support our clients, and I agree with you. It's always interesting because there are some clients that like to do the test or they'll come into the session and you'll say, "Is there anything you want to talk about?" "No, I'm just curious." You know, they kind of give you the the blank. 
And right. and sometimes people genuinely are, and that's fine. And then I just dive in and off we go. But then there are those clients that 10 or 15 minutes in, when you've said a few things that are really key, they're like, okay, well, what I really wanted to talk about was blah, blah. And it's like, okay, well, obviously I passed the test and now we can actually get down to business, you know, right. whatever their actual intention is. Um and that, like, being able to create this dialogue, it, it comes down to your comfort level and your sense of serving and supporting the client but also collaborating with them so that it's not up to we, – we shouldn't expect ourselves to be psychic. It's not really going to be – it's not on us necessarily to say, well, this is what I divined we should talk about today. In the same way that if you go to the doctor, they don't just – go, okay, I think your heart's having a problem or maybe you've come to me because you've got a pain in your shoulder. You actually tell the doctor this weird thing's going on here and then the doctor will explore accordingly. And I think similarly our clients, you know, can almost help themselves have a really good experience, um, which is why A, I do think you should ask something. So whether you ask in the email beforehand, whether you ask at the top of the session, whether you do both, it's very fair and appropriate and it doesn't mean you're a bad astrologer if you're asking for preference around topics from your clients. Yeah. Well, in clients, it's just better for them to know that it's it's much more of a waste of time to that, that uh, you're going to have the most effective and, and useful consultation if it is more of a dialogue and a back and forth. And most astrologers are expecting that rather than it just having the astrologer talk at you and tell you everything with no feedback during the course of it, you're going to end up getting, even if you feel like that's a good test or something like that, you're going to end up getting a lot less out of that than if it's more of a participatory back and forth type thing. And and obviously that can go too far in the other direction because I know that there's some astrologers who who've almost relied on rely on that too much, um, getting feedback from the client or other things like that. But there's some sort of healthy middle ground, which is I think the most optimal sort of way to do a consultation. I think most astrologers are generally on the same page about that. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Yeah. All I mean, right. We could keep going on this question, but I know we have many questions. <laughs> yeah. So and I feel like I, we've answered the point of what she's asking. Yeah. Yeah. I think that was a pretty good answer. So the next one, I threw in a uh, more technical question yep. about the houses and there was two more that followed it. So maybe we can do those. Uh, so do you want to read the next one? Sure. So this is from Sinead Byrne, I think, if I'm saying that okay in my Australian accent. Mm -hmm. Why does there seem to be more attention given to the Ascendant in Midheaven than the Descendant and the Nadir? Do you consider all four points equally important? Do you want to go first? Sure. So I think traditionally, I mean, I don't consider all four to be equally important. And I think they've traditionally, the ranking is usually something like like ascendant, midheaven, descendant, IC, in terms of uh, the level of of power and uh, sort of notoriety associated with each in a chart. And part of the reason for that is that the ascendant and the midheaven are more sort of from an observational standpoint are just more notable when they when the sun especially is in the, that position. So the ascendant is when the sun rises. Over the eastern horizon at sunrise in the morning, which is you know extremely notable and is at basically the start of daybreak, and then the midheaven is depending on what midheaven you're using, but more or less when the the sun is at either its highest point or is in the middle of the sky, which again happens around the middle of the day and is at the point when that astronomical body is at its most visible uh, in the sky, and therefore from an observational or even a divin divinatory standpoint. 
is more symbolically notable compared to the other two options are sunset, which is also notable, but slightly less so. And then finally, the IC is when the sun is completely below the horizon and cannot be viewed at all. Yeah, totally. I mean, and I think it goes back to the ancient Egyptians who kind of conceptualized that journey of the sun as, you know, the de- the rebirth, death, rebirth kind of cycle where mm-hmm. the ascendant position, which is in all lists that I've come across, is considered to be the most powerful placement is the rise or the birth of the sun. So it's it's that power from revelation and insight, you know, the idea of warmth and light coming in. And then the midheaven is it's just the it's the culmination of what began at daybreak. And the heat of the sun is at its strongest in the middle of the day. And that is that is the power of the sun. The light is brightest and the heat is is strongest. So I I agree with you completely, Chris. I don't consider that they're four equal points. I do, and I sort of, I was talking about this funnily enough in class this week with students. I sort of think about the ascendant and midheaven as the more yang expressive points. They're more dynamic. They're more about activity or action. Whereas the descendant and the IC are more yin. And, you know, the descendant, that Western setting sun was associated with death in the, to the ancient Egyptians. So the way they conceptualized that model. So that's why it's not a, a primary point. Um, so yeah. And then of course the midnight position, the IC that the sun has no power at that time of day. Yeah. That's a really good. And the, the idea that the analogy of what's happening with the sun is then extended to the other planets in those positions and it, they're attributed similar meanings. Um, but I like that point about the Egyptian cause that's a very old doctrine, that notion that there's four ages and that Mm. the diurnal cycle breaks up the life into four ages and that the ascendant represents birth and the beginning of life. Then you move up to the midheaven, which represents youth and and adulthood and sort of being in your prime. And then eventually you have the descendant, which is associated with old age and starting to sort of material essence starting to give way. And then eventually the fourth is associated with death and events that happen after death. And there's a little bit of interchange there where sometimes the descendant is death and then the fourth is things that happen after death, but you you kind of get the picture. Yeah, absolutely. And so I think, yeah, if you haven't encountered that connection, if you like, between those Egyptian ideas and those critical angular points, it does feel a bit arbitrary because you just hear they're all angular points and you don't know why two seem to get you know more rave reviews than the other two. Um, if anyone wants to read more on that, I found Deborah Holding's book, um, houses temples of the sky to be really interesting um yeah sure and uh what else i mean there's other things tied in with that especially in a hellenistic and a whole sign context like the aspects like the ascendant representing the native and the 10th house or 10th whole sign house being a superior square overcoming the first house and therefore that part of the power of the midheaven and the 10th house coming from that versus the seventh house being an opposition or the fourth house being an inferior square to the ascendant. That also comes up in the context of zodiac releasing and some time lord techniques where there's certain angles, angular houses that are more powerful. The first and tenth are are clearly more active and powerful than the seventh and fourth. So there's a bunch of different ways that this sort of comes into play. Um, The last thing I would mention about that is just it's really surprising. Um, I've been really surprised at how often the fourth house comes up Related to that that Egyptian doctrine, when uh, death occurs or when death is involved, mm. especially when doing annual perfections where you count one sign 
per year from the ascendant, and it goes through each of the twelve houses, and eventually comes back to the ascendant uh, every twelve years. Uh, fourth house perfection years just came up so often for me in uh, the for the year in which a person died, and I just I was just reminded of this last weekend when somebody gave a talk for a local Den- Denver astrology group about a famous. Um, biography, and the guy died in a fourth house perfection year, and it just reminded me of that all over again. Something I had seen in the past. Yeah, so the fourth house death of the native, so death of the individual themselves. Yeah, we're just so used to associating the eighth house with death, but that wasn't the only house associated with death traditionally, and the fourth uh-huh. was often associated with that very much as well. Yeah, yeah, I think, and I think I'd seen references to the seventh as well with that setting sun component. So. It right. is interesting that when you look back, there has been, I mean, death and the other topic is sex, which seems to have sort of moved houses um, over the millennia. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, so, I yeah. know we have a few questions on the houses too. Sure. Yeah. Do you want to take the next one? Sure. So, oh my goodness, we did that on purpose. Um, I'm going to apologize to this person if I pronounce their name incorrectly. Kapunaheli. I'm not sure. We're going to say Wong. Yeah, I think that's correct. Is that okay? Mm-hmm. Um, Mr. or Ms. Wong, uh, do either of us, you or Kelly, have a preferred order that you refer to the houses as you delineate a chart? For example, do you go sequentially or do you prefer to go in order of related areas of life such as second, sixth, tenth, and so on? What do you uh, think? Okay. So I... I do have a particular routine, the, the Kelly version of this, which you do not have to do. You know, people can, I always say to students, you've got to find your own way. If you want to steal mine to get you started, go for it. Mm-hmm. I always start with the ascendant, always. And the first house that I go to inside the chart is the house that holds the ascendant ruling planet. So, uh, say, that, say again. that again. <laughs> so, you start yeah. with what? So, if you have a Sagittarius ascendant, Mm-hmm. I'm going to look for the place of Jupiter inside the chart. So whatever house Jupiter is in, in okay, that yeah, chart. Okay, yeah, you focus on the, the house yep. that the ruler of the Ascendant is located. Correct, okay, yeah. yes. That, so the house, well. the ruler of the places, basically. What is the ruler of the Ascendant and where is it in the chart? So right. I don't have a prescribed formula where I always talk about the first house and then I go to the 10th house, for instance. I will let the chart tell me where we're going to go next, basically. Sure. Or like um, if there's like a stellium or something in a specific house that might draw your attention towards that. Absolutely. And it's a little bit collaborative in the sense that depending on how I'm working with the client, whether it's in person or online, sometimes the client will say, oh my God, look at that thing. And I'll be like, okay, let's just gestalt the hell out of this and go straight to whatever you've been drawn to. Um, the other, And yeah, the st- a stellium I try to talk about the sun, moon, and the ascendant in the first portion of a reading. So- mm. Again, I'll pick the sex light um, or if the sun or the moon has anything special going on around them. You know, it's very common for clients, even if they're new to astrology, to come in and be like, and they know that they know their sign. They know they're an Aries or a Taurus or what have you, but they may not know that their sun is in the fifth house or that their sun is conjunct a fixed star or, you know, um, conjunct a particular planet. So I'll try and find a feature that's a bit, that they're unlikely to know about themselves. Um, but yeah, this, the house of the sun is usually something I would talk about just because they don't usually know about that. And then, but for night, for a night chart person, I would just go straight to the moon and, you know, whatever house the moon is in or involved with, we would talk about. So, um, 
That's yeah. So I don't really go sequentially. And if I was to make a confession to the internet and our listeners, I don't always talk about every house in every reading. Um, yeah. it's, I mean, there's too, there's so little time and there's so much to cover that there, that, that would take a lot. That would be like a reading in and of itself. If you did go sequentially and try and do all of them. Yes. That's actually a really good point, Chris. Cause I think that is a reading unto itself. I'm like, if you want just to go around the houses, that will be an hour, maybe an hour and a half. And we can just delineate house by house. But if we're looking to do any predictive work or if we're looking to get the highlights and do predictive work, we cannot do every house in, in one session. Yeah. So, so it just goes back to the first question or, or second question, which is just usually needing, usually the focus and what houses will focus on is going to de- be dependent on what topics the client wants to focus on. So if they want to focus on career, you know, then you might focus on the 10th house. If you, they want to focus on financial matters, you might focus on the second house or the eighth house. If they want to focus on, you know, their friends or children, then the 11th or the fifth house or what have you. So totally. it's usually topic specific, I would say most of the time. That And that's actually a really good point because that that is that it, topic specific. So, and even if they say money, clarify with your client, because as you just mentioned, Chris, money could be second or eighth house. So when somebody says, I want to talk about money, I'm like, do you want to know about how to earn money or what to do with money from a budgeting perspective? Or are you trying to get a handle on your debt or figure out money with a partner, for instance? Because then I'm going to approach the second or the eighth, depending. Sometimes it's a bit of both, but I think that's a really good point, Chris. And to answer this person's question, it sounds like we go to the houses in the chart that are either relevant because of specific astrological configurations or are connected to the topics that the client is presenting with. Yeah, definitely. And I think that's a good answer. But I liked your first point because that's also something I do and I think is pretty common amongst traditional astrologers is to focus in on the house placement of the ruler of the ascendant from the start as indicating one of the most important areas of the native's life that's probably going to stand out. Like if they have the ruler of the ascendant in the, you know, 11th house, then friends and groups might be more important to them than it would be for somebody else. Or if they have the ruler of the ascendant in uh, the ninth, then like travel or education or something might be more important to them than it is for other people in terms of dictating the course of their life. Absolutely. Yeah. A hundred percent. And I think one of the great things we do when we do readings for people is we we help clarify or we we sort of give an explanation for something that they've probably suspected about themselves, but maybe they've been judging or they've been grappling with. They don't know if they should be like that because other people aren't. And to be be so clear, and that's where I think the ascendant ruling planet is critical, it will be something that's really important to that person that they kind of need to really flourish, for instance. So- right. Although it's funny because sometimes, on the one hand, this is a conundrum that I ran into sometimes with consultations, which is that sometimes you know, you're looking at the chart and you're just describing the person's life as it is, and sometimes it's just stuff they already know. And there's almost something I can't think of the right word, but I know there's definitely situations where you're saying something where you shouldn't be able to know that about the person's life and they're acknowledging that that's true, but it's almost like mundane or not impressive because you're just telling them things that they already know. Yeah. And sometimes that this is a thing. Other times the issue you run into is you can be telling a person things, and I've talked about this over and over again on the podcast, but sometimes you can tell a person things that are true but just haven't happened yet in their life. And I remember doing that for well, I remember doing that for a reading I did for Lisa, where she, the ruler of the ninth was in the eleventh, and I said, you know, being involved in astrology groups, 
um, looks like it, it will be, it's important for you. And she's like, no, no, that's not really the case. And, <laughs> and it was really, it was funny cause it was one of like the worst, almost like the worst readings I had because she was just very adamant that she had no interest in being involved in, in uh, groups in group setting or, or organizations or anything like that. Cause the degree of her midheaven is also in the 11th whole sign house. So it was tying in ninth house matters with the 11th house and the 10th house. And I delineated it pretty straightforwardly. And, um, you know, years later, she's been the president of like an astrology <laughs> like, organization. This for was a few obviously years. a few years ago. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and she's reading. been organizing. She's one of the three presidents that are helping to organize UAC over the past four years. So that was one of those ones that came true later on, eventually. But for at least at the time, it was something that just could not have been more wrong in terms of what she thought her life at that time really was about. Yeah, and that's a really good point, Chris. Is that you know, without getting into all the specifics about timing techniques, some the chart is a roadmap for life. And sometimes you encounter a person partway down that path where they haven't quite got to some of the other things that are there. And uh, yeah, that, that makes you feel like you've sometimes done a bad job or you got it wrong, but they're just yeah. not there yet, I guess. Yeah. It's like a weird occupational hazard of the consulting astrologer, which is did you say something that was actually not true or is this something that hasn't happened yet? And there's not really any way to know in some instances because sometimes it can turn out to later be true in some way. Or more frustratingly is another common astrologer experience, the thing where you you make a statement towards the beginning of the consultation, they say, no, that's not true. And then later in the consultation, you find out that it was true and they just didn't recognize it. Or there was something about the way that you, if you had phrased it slightly differently, they would have acknowledged it because of but because you used one word that was like slightly foreign or, or that they didn't quite connect, they they didn't recognize the truth of the statement, but then it turned out to be, you know, accurate. There's little little fun things. Oh my like gosh, that. Chris, I could go on a satin in Virgo word choice tangent here. But, okay. but I mean I'll I'll make it very brief. It is it is true. And I noticed this moving uh, being Australian and moving to Canada. And so I still work a lot with my Australian clientele, but my North American clientele grew and there are different words that mean different things in different cultures and there are different mm. ways of describing different things. And it really showed me the power of the right word or the wrong word that I've had that experience that you described, client Chris, where with a client, you'll say something and you'll use a particular phrase or a particular word. And sometimes all they do is they reject the word. They're like, I don't know what that word is, or I know that word to be bad. So I'm mm. not going to agree to anything that has anything to do with that word. And maybe later on you rephrase, or if you if you know, you can say, well, let me just say it a different way. Um, and then sometimes they will actually say exactly what you were trying to say, but using different words. And you're like, that statement, that's the astrological thing right there. Right. And to go back to one of our earlier questions today, why you have to go and talk to clients about this stuff is that the textbooks only give you one or two descriptions for a certain placement, and each of your clients will give you a unique spin on that that will help you better understand the layers to that. So, yeah, yeah. and you'll see you'll see like the the core truth oftentimes of the original delineation that you read, but it's just the specific manifestation. You know, literally everybody has a unique chart that's never repeated itself in the precise details before. And therefore, while there are some underlying sort of themes that have core archetypal similarities, the specific manifestation is always going to be slightly different and is going to teach you something slightly new about how different combinations can work out. Absolutely. Oh my, that's, it's, yeah, completely. 
Yeah. We're doing a good uh, discussion of client astrology here today, which is great. No, we should have just made this the client astrologer consulting astrologer complaint uh, episode. No, um, that's good. Well, and we've done the houses, and then we've got one more question on this, don't we? A nice curly one. Yeah, so this one's kind of tricky. So this is from Naomi Bennett. She says, The strange concept that the 12th house is hidden and cadent when actually the sun rises into the 12th, lights up the sky at that time. There's nothing hidden about the 12th house, uh, whereas the six sinks below the horizon and definitely hides planets and the sun. Why is that? So she's basically asking why is the 12th house sometimes associated with hidden matters uh, and things like that, even though the sun and the other planets have just moved up into the sky, basically, when they get to that position. Yes. So this is um, one of those areas where <laughs> um, abstract uh, schematic considerations, I feel like, are more important in the way that astrologers have developed the delineations than purely observational ones. So one of those things is just the fact that the fact that the 12th doesn't aspect through a major aspect the first house. So the major aspects are the the conjunction, sextile, square, trine, and opposition. And using whole sign houses, which was the original house system, if you draw aspect lines from each of the houses, then the ones that aspect the rising sign of the first house are generally considered to be good houses. And the ones that don't aspect the first house are generally considered to be challenging houses that have more challenging or negative significations, with the 12th house being one of those in addition to the 8th, the 6th, and the 2nd. So that's one of the things that's happening there is there's like abstract or schematic yeah. conceptual sort of reasons that are are being put on top of and are instead of the observational thing being primary. But there is an observational component to that, and it's the notion of the angular triads and the notion of what declining and succeedant houses are, which is uh, cadent houses, which were known as declining houses in the Hellenistic traditions, are in whole sign houses, they're houses that have planets that are falling away from the angular houses. So there's this notion of decline or falling or um, in some instances like uh, disintegration and sort of like falling apart or losing strength as opposed to the succeedant houses which are moving up towards or building up towards the angular houses. And so they're associated with things that are growing or gaining or coming into prominence, whereas declines are ones that are falling away from prominence. And then tied into that is the notion that the 12th house, if the ascendant and marks the zodiacal sign that was rising at the moment of birth, then the 12th house is actually the sign that was rising just an hour or two earlier, so during the process of the native being born. And a lot of the ancient delineations, like in Rhetorius of Egypt in the 6th or 7th century, talk about the 12th house in that context as being kind of a dangerous house that's in between worlds because the native at that time is in between life and death. Mm. And that's where some of the negative associations come from as well, especially because in the ancient world, you know, people could die much more commonly in childbirth, and it really was dangerous both for the child as well as for the mother. Hugely so. Yeah, I think that's the the big thing that I conceptualize with the 12th house being hidden is that it is hidden from the native. 
because the 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 perspective, if you like, of the houses is all taken from that, as you said, Chris, the relationship or the angular relationship to the ascendant or the first house. And mm. the twelfth house is like in a blind spot position because it's you know it's just behind you, but you can't actually see it. If you know if you drive, you know what that blind spot. There's this awkward spot that you can't get your eyes on. And some of the houses that have that slightly um, more challenging topic associated with them have that that blind spot configuration. So, and I think you make the right, well, not the right point, of course, it's the right point, but you've made the point really clearly, which is the difference between the the kind of two-dimensional overlay of meaning onto a three-dimensional lived experience. Um, Yeah. And I think the, the other thing that I have observed around the 12th house, and this is again, just one of those weirdly anecdotal things from client consults, which I, I'm not going to be able to claim that I have a you know double blind study to kind of back up. But when people have transits or triggers or activations of some kind to the 12th house, there is this sort of weird devotion to their career that happens in that time frame. And one thing I've come to sort of be reminded of is that the 12th house does form a sextile relationship to the 10th. And that the 12th house stuff or the topics or matters or triggers 12th house blind to the individual, but somehow available to one's career or one's professional undertakings. So it's just, you know, who and ha- who and what is it blind to, if that makes sense. And I think that subtlety around how we look at the houses interacting, seeing or not seeing each other can really deepen into that question as well. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and that's probably one we could go into a lot more, but maybe I think that's good. The next for now. question's really fun. Yeah. So the the next question is from Adam Madison, who is a patron that I was talking to recently about conferences, and he made some comments. So his question is, uh, do you have any advice to make the most out of UAC this year? So out of attending the United Astrology Conference, he's saying if one were to attend, how would you make the most out of it? So the United Astrology Conference is happening in Chicago in May. It's the conference of the decade. It's going to have like 1,500 or maybe even upwards of 2,000 astrologers in attendance with over, I think, 100 astrologers speaking, giving lectures and workshops and other seminars and things like that. So how would you recommend people make the most out of it if they were to attend? So I think mingle. So like introduce yourself is one of the biggest things. I think Right. Just I remember go up to people and like just, introduce yourself and just you say hi. And you know, whether it's a person, like whether it's just another delegate or even the speakers. I mean, one thing I kind of wish I'd knew when I first started going to conferences was how friendly many astrologies, many astrologers really are. Mm-hmm. Of course, be respectful. Don't try and have a chat to someone if they're about to speak or, you know, they're trying to rush to the bathroom or something like that. And I know it's tricky to figure that stuff out, but if it's lunchtime or coffee time and everyone's just wandering around, you know, it's totally okay just to say hi. Um, and then the other part is be selective with the lectures that you attend. And I say that not because I'm like, some are good and some are bad, not at all. It is overwhelming if you were to try and go to a lecture in every time slot. There are so many to choose from. So I think obviously you want to try and get as much bang for your conference buck, but there's a huge part of the conference experience that has nothing to do with the lectures that you attend. Not that I'm saying don't go to lectures. I don't want it to sound like that, but the socializing and the networking and that sense of of belonging and community that comes from being in a place with 2000 people that think like you, I'll never forget UAC in 2008, my first UAC conference 
it felt like a homecoming for me. I had, I was a professional astrologer. I already had clients. I was already making my living as an astrologer, but that idea of being in a place where there were so many people just like me with my weird little interest, uh, it's very affirming, very kind of encouraging. So A, that's why you should go. Um, but B, yeah, be selective about the lectures. And the other tip around a lecture is try to hear one live lecture from all the astrologers that you're interested in. There is something different about hearing someone present or seeing some, experiencing someone present in the flesh. So even if you want to hear everything by one astrologer, look, I'm not saying don't do that, but it's good to try and at least hear a lecture in person because then you get a sense of their style, which makes it easier to buy recordings or downloads from that person in the future. So they would be my tips, but I'm interested. I know you did a podcast on this recently, Chris, didn't you, with um, Joe and Ryan about oh, yeah, how to have a did. good conference experience or something? Yeah, A Newbie's Guide to Astrology Conferences back yeah. in October. That was a good episode that people can listen to. Um, I would just say, I mean, I would say what you said, but modify it and say it's okay if you want to skip a lecture slot. And if you, if there's friends that are going out for lunch or you've met, you've met a group and you're trying to decide between going to a lecture and going out with people, then it's okay to like skip some lecture slots. But otherwise, you know, it is good to attend lectures. And sometimes it can be useful to force yourself sometimes to attend a lecture that you might not otherwise, if it's something that you don't know anything about, because it's one of those rare opportunities where you can, you can be exposed to a bunch of different types of astrology that you may not have studied before, or a bunch of different professional astrologers, and to very quickly get a sense for what their approach is about and, and what they're like as a presenter and whether that astrological tradition speaks to you in some some ways. So definitely, you know, trying to explore and try new things is a good part of of the conference experience, especially at UAC, because UAC has a abnormally high number of quality mm-hmm. lectures compared to most, you know, annual sort of yearly conferences. Totally. Totally. So there's that. Um, I want to grab my conference guide from 2012 to maybe just show people how much choice there is. Sure. So just talk for a sec. Okay. Um, other things. So yeah, push yourself. There's also um, pay attention to both the pre-conference and post-conference events of which there's a bunch of workshops and other things. So there's both workshops by individual astrologers. So for example, I'm doing a post-conference workshop that's on the advanced form of annual perfections and how to time the activation of certain topics in a given year so that you know how things are going to go in a given year for certain topics. So there's individual sort of technique-oriented workshops like that that are given by specific astrologers, but also the organizations like the NCGR and ESAR and AFAN and the other sponsoring organizations are also doing pre- and post-conference workshops. So you should look at those and see if any of those would interest you because you actually if you want to attend a, a workshop that's before or after the main conference, then you need to actually come in earlier or stay later than you might otherwise. And it's good to know that ahead of time since you know you don't want to have to already have your plane tickets booked and then find out that that you're not going to be there in time to attend a workshop that you otherwise would have liked to attend it or what have you. So that and also pay attention to the schedule to see if there's any parties or um, after hours types events happening because those can be really good to attend to meet other people. Like for example, the AFAN suite, uh, AFAN, the organization, the Association for Astrological Networking, 
just about every night of the conference will have a big suite open for people to come and mingle and talk and there's drinks and other stuff like that. So it's good to know about things like that and when they're occurring and where. Totally. I mean, that's the key. I think that's sort of, there's like the, there's the public, I couldn't find my 2012 um, UAC program, but I found the ESA 2016, which is a conference that is maybe a quarter of the size of UAC. So Mm -hmm. just to give people an idea, this was the conference guide. That's kind of how thick it is. And this is basically a description of all the lectures, the presenters, the pre- and post-conference workshop. It also has the social schedule that Chris is talking about because in addition to the formal learning part, there are always drink events, like the hospitality suite, the AFAN one. It's free. You just find out where it is. You show up. You have a drink. You have snacks. You meet people. It's that simple. I mean, conferences, if you're more of an introvert person, then you've got to pace yourself about which of these events, you know, the social events you can go with. But, um, yeah, so the UAC conference guide will be about four times this size. There is anything like, I think at UAC, there's 10 or 15 lectures going on at every one time. So you you really want to take the time when you first check into the conference to read through the conference guide so that you can figure out what are the must-see lectures or events that you want to go to. Um, and then you can fit in all your socializing because the best part, and this is, I mean, I'm desperate for this conference because I haven't seen Chris um, or Austin in person for a few years now. We've just been on different cycles with different conferences and it's just so good to be able to talk in person. So, um, you know, whether you've got friends, you know, you're going to meet up with or just the people that you meet, those lunches are great, uh, that people do. So I don't know, do we have more tips or just like, it's just like be in it really, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, honestly, there's probably a ton of stuff we could say about that, but a lot was probably covered in that episode in that from podcast. October. Yeah, and it's probably something we could stick up on for a while. But those are probably good for now. Yeah, and yeah, if you uh, want more, I guess check out that past episode, which I thought was just recently, but was nearly six months ago. So that's good. Wow. Yeah, and if anybody has any other tips for that, um, just post them in the comments section uh, on the the astrologypodcast.com website, and then maybe you could share some additional tips or strategies for for UAC. Yeah. Okay. All right. So do you want to read the next one? Sure. So this is from Claire Moon. What are some good first books for the baby astrology enthusiast? I want to take classes in the future. I can't right now. Um, So I'm looking to do something productive in the meantime. And Chris, you've got a blog post titled Top Six Astrology Books for Beginners, which is great. Somewhere. Yeah, and I'm I sure actually, it'll be in the show listing online. I actually made a, a YouTube video about this uh, ah. a few months ago in July, and it's like a obnoxiously long, <laughs> almost 30 minute long YouTube video. But I go through my top six astrology books for beginners. Uh, so I would recommend checking that out. Just do a Google Google search for top six astrology books for beginners, or do that on YouTube, and you'll see the video come up on my YouTube page. But just to give you the list really quickly. Uh, number six was The Secret Language of Astrology by Roy Gillett, which is a very well-illustrated book, just kind of a, a nice super beginner book. Uh, number five is The American Ephemeris, uh, which is a book of planetary positions, which you need to to learn and start start learning. Oh yeah, let's see that again. So you, every astrologer has a tattered uh, ephemeris like this because we use them so frequently and they, they fall day. apart. Yeah. So incredibly important to learn to get an ephemeris and start learning how to use it early on. 
Um, it basically just tells you that's, where the and planets are. And that's how are. important it is. We didn't prep that. It just sits on my desk. And so as soon as you mentioned ephemeris, it's just right here. Right. Uh, let's see. So that's number five. Number four on my list was uh, Parker's Astrology by oh, Julian Derek one. Parker. It's a great, like, thick, but very really comprehensive, comprehensive book. Yeah. Yeah. So that's a good starter book. Number three, I list a little bit controversial is Cosmos and Psyche by Richard Tarnas which I list because it's a good like kind of advanced, but still he, he's basically making the case, this is what astrology is, and this is why you should pay attention to it, to intellectuals and to academics. So it's yep. not necessarily great as a beginner astrology book. However, if you're more looking for some of the theoretical and philosophical and conceptual pitch of how can astrology possibly be valid in modern times, then that might be a good book to start with. Uh, it is it is very dense, um, but the 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 section in there that um, Richard has on the planets, where he just describes each of the planets, is actually I use it in teaching because it is a really great segment in that book. So yeah, and we actually read his delineation, his significations of Saturn at the beginning of the Saturn and Capricorn episode last month. Oh, perfect, perfect. Yeah. Book number two. Um, what? What's? I'm. I didn't check this list out before, so I'm excited. <laughs> so number two is on the heavenly spheres by Helena Avalar and Luis Ribeiro. <gasps> Fantastic. Uh, which is, uh, published by the AFA, and that's a couple of astrologers from Portugal that do traditional medieval and especially Renaissance astrology. And so this is more of an introduction to everything you've ever wanted to know about uh, the more traditional forms, mm. especially medieval and Renaissance astrology, but. Uh, Luis does uh, graphic illustrations, and it has just amazing diagrams illustrating almost every possible concept. And it is also a very comprehensive, um, yeah, introduction to the more. Yeah, I think it could take you from beginner right through. Like it does get into some fairly um, high level or more comprehensive concepts. In addition to starting with this is what this planet means, kind of thing. Right. And because it's more traditional, it's geared towards natal, but it also sets you up well if you wanted to do electional and horary, even though it doesn't necessarily teach those in that book. It teaches some of the basic concepts that would later be useful in that. Yeah, highly Um, recommend. And then finally, my number one recommendation actually for beginner astrology books was a book called The Essential Guide to Practical Astrology by April Elliott Kent. So I actually really liked her book. It came out several years ago, and I think it's in, yeah, that's the second, second the latest print, edition. Second it, it did go out of print, and she's got the rights back now, I think. Yeah, I was really excited to see that she put it back in print, because it was a great beginner intro to modern astrology book that I was recommending for several years. It was published by like Penguin or something like that, and then it went out of print, and now it's back. So that's my number one recommendation. And then finally, of course, I have a bonus recommendation, which is my book published a like, year ago. I didn't hear about the best book yet, Chris. <laughs> no, that w- April's is my number one recommendation. Yeah. But uh, Hellenistic Astrology, The Study of Fate and Fortune, avail- available at fine bookstores everywhere. Uh, and by that, I primarily mean Amazon.com. There it is. And Kelly's got, oh my God, what have you done to it? You've got some notes. This is how you know I love a book. This is when okay. you first met me and I was carrying around my tattered maternus. This is what it looked like. So, okay. So, yeah. anyways, it's a Very comprehensive good. treatment of the original tradition of Western astrology that covers the history of where astrology came from, how it developed, the philosophy, and also basic, intermediate, and advanced techniques. So, it really covers just about everything. You need to know about natal astrology in the original approach to it. So I would recommend checking that out as well as a as a sort of bonus. Yes. 
No, right, and to, so. and to Claire's point, I mean, there are a lot of times where you're not in a position to be able to study astrology. It takes a big time commitment, so you've got to have emotional space for it. It also mm-hmm. costs money. If you're going to have some classes with some good teachers, you're going to pay for them. Um, but you can always be reading. And, God, I think it would take someone quite some time to go through all the books on that list. So that would be a really good grounding. If that's if where you're at is all you can do is read some books right now, that sounds fantastic. Yeah. And I mean, all astrology, like reading has always been one of the primary transmission methods of astrological techniques for two or 3,000 years now. And all astrologers eventually end up building a small library of astrology books. So small. one of the things come on, really? Are the library yeah, small? <laughs> a large a large cache of astrology texts, um, because there's never gonna be just like that one book that you get that's gonna teach you everything about astrology, but instead you're gonna end up getting uh, several or a bunch of different books on different approaches or different topics in different areas that are gonna teach you different facets of the subject. And so the sooner you start building up your astrological library and reading through different sort of astrological literature, uh, the better off you're going to be in the long run. Totally. The only two little books I might throw into this list, Chris, just Mm -hmm. personal preferences of mine, I agree with all the ones that you suggested. Um, This was one of the first books that I read that helped me understand a birth chart, Stephen Arroyo's Chart Interpretation Handbook. I actually think the PDF of this book is available free online because it was published in the 80s. It's got some really good points. And if you're learning astrology, there is a cookbook section, but it's not, it's a helpful cookbook section that gets you started. So there's some really good reading in here that I always encourage for newer students to check out. Um, So that um, it's a smaller read, um, but it's juicy. And then the one other book that I wish was around when I was starting and certainly when I was getting into traditional astrology, which would, was Ben Dyke's Traditional Astrology for Today, that little brown slender one. Yeah, um, that's a good intro to traditional astrology book. Yes, exactly. Because Stephen Arroyo and April Elliott Kent's books, they would be more kind of modern psychological. Um, but April, she is just so funny to read. Like she's so engaging that you, you, you'll learn so much from her. Um, but then, yeah, if you need an intro to some of the traditional ideas and concepts, this little book by Ben is fantastic. Um, so I ref- recommend that to students all the time, especially my poor students and clients who've been with me my entire career and had to kind of come with me on the switch, you know, from more modern psychological to traditional and then even into whole science. So, yeah, this is the book that's helped my students keep up with that, which is great. Yeah, he called that when he was writing it his invitation book because he wanted to write like an an invitation to this is what traditional astrology is about and this is why you might want to look into it. That's beautiful. And that's exactly what it feels like. It feels like there's a different way and if you want to check it out, just try this. And it's really clear and really simple. Um yeah. So Yeah. It's also a cheap books. book cuz it's, it's kind of re- short. Yeah, totally. It's like $10 or $12 or something. Yeah, I think it was not because I got it when I was in Australia, so it must have been cheap to ship as well. Um, okay, shipping is really expensive to Australia. Um, right? Yeah, yeah. I've, I've learned discovered. that recently <laughs> with my poster fiasco. Um, yeah, yeah, it's crazy. All right, so um, shall so we yeah, jump we into some other? Yeah, we're, we're, we're doing good. Uh, I think we could plow through like a few more if you feel sure. like it. Sure. Yeah. Do you want to go to Julie's question next, or? Um, yeah, because I just had a, well, it's kind of just, a complicated question. 
Yeah. What do you think? I just I'm I'm just trying to figure out exactly the question in there. I mean, she's asking. So let's just we'll just read it really quick. Yeah, so yeah. This is Julie Evans, and it says, "It seems to me that after one learns their astrology lessons, what separates a great," she says, "astrologist." I'd say astrologer from one <laughs> from one who is only no, technically. Oh no, Ju- yeah, no. This is a good question, actually. Julie's question. Um, yeah. From one who is only tech. What separates a great astrologer from one who is only technically correct is the ability to intuitively incorporate all of the elements of a chart, making it another entity entirely. Then. That, that is then conveyed to the client, a combination of synergy and synchronicity and action. In your experience, is this a natural gift or can it be learned? Uh, so I can just dive right in here if that's not, sure. not rude. Yeah. Okay. In my experience, it can be learned. What she's talking about is that magical space wherein the separate pieces of a chart are kind of pulled together in a cohesive whole. And you are right, Julie, spot on. That is what separates someone who is a good um, practitioner astrologer, so someone who can maybe teach or consult, is someone who can pull the pieces together. When you learn, you learn by pulling the pieces apart, and then the hard part is how to put it all back together, like an origami thing at the end. I actually think, because Julie mentions one of the words I love to talk about, which is the idea of the ability to intuitively incorporate everything. So, yes, that ability to incorporate things which seems like intuition – is where we're into like a competency space, which comes through practice. So I do believe that you can learn it. And the way you learn it is by doing. You don't learn it by reading books or taking more tests. Not that either of those things are bad, but you learn it by talking to people about charts. Because what you're learning is the way the different pieces interact, the way this bit over here changes the interpretation of this bit over here so that we get a unique thread for this particular person. And this makes me think of Malcolm Gladwell's idea about mastery, where he talks about the 10,000 hours, that if you can spend 10,000 hours doing anything, you will become, you know, he calls it mastery. I might, we might call it competency. And people like you, Chris, and like myself who have been working with astrology for a long, long time, and because we started quite young, we hit our 10,000 hours maybe a little on the early side. And so for people coming in, you know, and you've got a couple of hours a week around work and family, you just got to be patient and stick with it. But I do think that any skill that you um, repeat enough times becomes intuitive because the more you do it, the more you learn about the deeper layers and the those undercurrents and threads of what you do. In the same way that a mechanic or a heart surgeon, over time, you know, a starting mechanic is going to have to dig in the car for, you know, an hour to figure out what's wrong. And a mechanic who's been a mechanic for 50 years, they hear your car pull into the driveway and they know exactly what's wrong because they know the subtleties about the different problems and the way they sound. So that's my very passionate response to Julie's question. <laughs> yeah, definitely. And and one of the points that you made, one of the word, keywords that you use there that's important probably to clarify is is the word intuition because I feel like oftentimes when the word intuition is used yes it's almost used in place of astrological understanding or as this other element that is outside of or is something different from actually having skilled astrological interpretation or the ability to interpret and like when people say that they're like an intuitive astrologer while occasionally there's people that 
are okay astrologers that say that. Typically, I feel like a person that says that they're an intuitive astrologer, they're doing intuitive astrology, is typically a keyword that means they're primarily doing something else or acting as a psychic rather than being really skilled or really competent as a as a practicing astrologer with just the, that tool set or there's something where they're using the astrological chart as a jumping off point for you know their psychic or whatever intuitive abilities they they may or may not have um but intuitive in the sense that you were using it like with the mechanic I really liked that analogy because it's something that just comes the ability to synthesize chart placements is something that can only come from experience and that's one of the biggest challenges that beginner and intermediate students have is how do you get to the point of synthesis? And it's really just something that comes through repetition and from doing it over and over again and eventually getting a sense for you know when a chart comes to you, starting to put it together and see the pattern and see how everything works together in a way that's um, – I'm trying to think of a better word than intuitive because of the the baggage that that term has, but I'm having trouble coming up with one right now. But it's um, it's like a felt sense because I agree with you. I think the intuition is often incorrectly used. And yeah, that's that's where I was going with with the mechanic or even the heart surgeon, what have you. When you do something enough, so when you're taking action about this, you you feel your way in through it. Um, and it feels like intuition, but it's your instinct or your experience starting to show through. Right. Uh, that that's built up and and sort of accumulated as a result of experience and as a result of sometimes failure or challenge or instances where something didn't go right and you learned something from that and then improved over time. Um, yeah. I mean, one thing that I wanted to say, because I made this point yeah, recently what, on, on Twitter was just question? that there's one thing that's really useful that astrologers have, which is um, a really heightened sense of pattern recognition oh, yes. uh, or it's like a really good skill to have both in order to correctly identify like when there's an, a genuine astrological correlation and seeing what the astrological placement was and what that's correlating with and knowing why it's correlating with that thing or being able to see a connection between two things that somebody else might miss that's actually genuinely there. But also um, having a developed sense of that in order to be able to discern things that are not uh, genuine correlations or really are random or, or not connected in a significant way astrologically because that's you know sometimes the downside is there's certain times where you you'll run into this in the astrological community where people's like pattern recognition just goes on the fritz and they start seeing correlations in everything or um don't have a very re- refined sense of that and that can be the downside of it so the but but that's a very important skill to learn for both of those reasons both to identify as well as to um, you know, identify things are not that are not genu- genuine correlations. Absolutely, and I think that's that. I love that pattern recognition because that's, and I think Austin, we've talked about that with him as well. That to be able to recognize the patterns, but also to recognize what's not a pattern, where the anomalies might lie, and that, I mean, that's that's where I find astrology, especially client astrology, it's so magical because you'll sit down with a client's charts and you'll recognize a part of a pattern and maybe a part of a different pattern. And then you're like, oh my God, I've not seen this particular combination before. So uh, yeah. So what you're saying there, Chris, is that part of that ability to pull things together comes down to developing that pattern recognition skill. Yeah, and that being an important skill to develop. I mean, the other thing, the other analogy, like the one you use, is 
Lee Lehman titled her book on horary, The Martial Art of Horary Astrology. And she has this great analogy towards the beginning where she talks about how you initially in like in like Taekwondo or karate or whatever, whichever martial art branch she specialized in where she was using this analogy where you initially learn like stances and different moves and stuff but eventually through practice and through just sheer repetition over and over again eventually that becomes a a, a solid movement that just flows um instinctually from you um as something that you almost don't even need to think about it just sort of happens and that's sort of what you're we're talking about here as well in terms of achieving chart synthesis and the difference between <laughs> like achieving liftoff, achieving chart synthesis, it's right? A, it's a big goal, yeah, yeah. Um, so it's, it's something like that, and it's hard because it's something. That's why we were given that advice advice earlier. That really, the sooner you can start mm. having that dialogue with clients, even if it's just doing readings for free or whatever, the better, because you'll start getting your your time in and start gathering up that experience. A hundred percent. And yeah, the, the 10,000 hours doesn't start when you first read your first astrology book or first take your class. It starts when you do your first consult. Um, because that's, and so the key, I think the big thing here is repetition that we're both sort of alluding to is it's the hours at the coal face or it's the hours doing the work that will lead to that, to what other people will interpret. Cause I get asked this a lot of the time. People say, are you really intuitive? And what they mean are, are you really psychic? I'm like, no, no, I've just, I, I know charts. That's what I, that's what I know. I've looked at many and it, it's, it, the outside interpretation is you must be magic, but the inside thing is just the work basically. Right. Right. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. Um, okay. And I wanted to back up really quickly cause I yeah. skipped over one that was a, a, a related question to the book one. Yes. Uh, if I may, and because I think there is a relatively easy answer to this. So this is from, or, or do you want to read this one? No, no, oh, I'll read the question because you can answer it. Okay. Let's go with that. So it's from Luciano de Souza, writing from Sao Paulo, Brazil, and would like to know if you think it's possible to delineate a school of thought based on the several authors who have written about astrology since the 20th century. Would it make sense? I'm assuming that's 20th there. Um, would it make sense to put them in the same category, the books by, say, Liz Green and Stephen Arroyo? How can the student of astrology have a more focused understanding of the matter by knowing which authors to follow for a certain method? Yeah, so that's an amazing question, and that flowed very well with the previous you know, top six books, books on astrology recommendation, because one of the things I did in that list is I mixed together different traditions and different approaches of astrology uh, a little bit with that list, um, but the answer to his question is yes. There's definitely, in some instances, there's different schools of thought. There's different astrological traditions, and there's different branches of astrology. And if you can identify, you know, what approach a person is following, then sometimes you can see other contemporaries or other people that follow a similar approach, and you can kind of group different astrology books into different categories as a result of that. Uh, now, how to do that, unfortunately, is kind of difficult, and I'm not sure if there's any easier, quick way to do that. But yeah, that was an instance like Liz Green and Stephen Arroyo, he mentioned specifically, that would represent a specific approach to you know, modern psychological astrology. And the fact that they wrote books together uh, is a good, f- for example, indication. I think they wrote a book together, right? 
Or am I thinking of Howard Sisportis? Howard Sisportis, yeah. Yeah, okay. I don't think Stephen and Liz, Stephen Arroyo and, and Liz, but um, Liz and Howard, there's a number of books, maybe from their lecturings together, if that's what they did, I think. Sure. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, you can definitely group, um, or there's other people, like, for example, Richard Tarnas wrote Cosmos and Psyche, and then recently he's had a number of students that are following his method and they, they've designated, they're calling it like archetypal astrology or something like that. And so there's different astrologers who are identifying as archetypal astrologers like uh, Kieran Legrisi, who has written a few books at this point, uh, follows that specific approach. And so you can kind of see him as being in the lineage of somebody like Richard Tarnas. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm trying to think of other people that are in like a specific lineage or or represent like a specific school. Can you think of anybody? Um, well, I guess I'm thinking about the evolutionary kind of lineage. Right. Um, although there's a few different. There's like the Jeffrey Wolf Green, the Stephen Forrest. There's even like Mark Jones would sort of be under part of that umbrella. So the mm-hmm. people that would then be, but I couldn't really think of the next tier down. I'm not quite sure who would come under. Um, yeah, but just seeing like who, if they say who their teachers are, or if they studied at a specific school, or if they they identify with a specific tradition or approach to astrology, then that's a good indication. Um, and you can sort of look at who their teacher was and see the kind of lineage and see the similarities between the style of the teacher and the student or what have you. Yeah. But uh, delineating and giving a full outline of all the different schools and things, I think, is a little bit beyond the scope of anything we could do here. But that's probably the best best thing you can do in terms of that. Yes. Yeah. Uh, how would a student of astrology have a more focused understanding of which authors to follow? Yeah, it is. It is tricky. But I think if you if you are looking to follow a particular method, whether it's evolutionary or transpersonal or archetypal or traditional, it's almost just a matter of figuring out who are the big authors in that space. And you could probably do that online, I would think, these days. Yeah. Another thing you can do is do a search for branches of astrology and do a search for traditions of astrology, mm-hmm. because that'll give you an overview. I think you and I, Kelly, may have done like an episode on that at one point in the past. And I know I've done a couple of YouTube videos on it because that in and of itself will give you the broad outlines of, you know, these are the four main branches or applications of astrology, which are, you know, mundane, natal, electional, and horary. So knowing that is is one thing right on its own. And then major traditions of astrology tells you who what the major traditions are historically in terms of, you know, Hellenistic, Indian, medieval, Renaissance, and modern, and then whatever the subsets are from there. Totally. Yeah. All right. I think that's it. So there are obviously a number of other questions, but I know we're we're sort of up for time at this point, right? Yeah, and I'm I'm just not sure if there are any quick questions on. I mean, the Mac question. That's is kind the, of quick. that's the one I'm like I want to answer Marin about uh, Marin Altman. Who's asking, is that okay? Should we do this one? Because I think it's a yeah, one sentence answer. Sure, go ahead. Um, what program would you recommend, I guess, astrology software program for a Mac since Solifire isn't compatible? And Chris, you and I both said that we know people who run a parallel or run parallels on their Macs to run Solifire. So you can definitely still work with Solifire on a Mac. Yeah, and unfortunately, it's like I'm not, I don't use a Mac, so I'm not familiar and I'm not up to date with all of the latest programs that are available for Macs. Uh, at this point, mm-hmm. so I can't speak authoritatively on it. 
but I know, you know, over the past decade that solar fire is still, still used so widely and it's still the main program that most of the people I use to the extent that the friends that I do know that use Macs tend to run parallels or some similar program that allows them to run Windows programs just so that they can run solar fire. Yeah. So, our, you know, Nick Diggenbest, our friend Nick Diggenbest is the primary or one of the main examples that comes to mind right away because I know that that's always, on the one hand, he's a hardline Mac guy and he always gets a, a new Mac every few years, but he always makes sure that he can install solar fire on it. Yeah. And look, if it works for the human ephemeris, it's going to work for everyone. Yeah. Um, and I think they're working on a cross compatible version. So hopefully that'll be out before too long. And in the meantime, if anybody, I forgot, I always forget to mention on the forecast episodes, the promo code, but you can actually oh, get yeah. like a 15% discount, I think, or 10% discount on solar fire. If you use the promo code they gave us, which is AP15 uh, during checkout when you're purchasing solar fire. So if you get solar fire, use the discount code and you'll get some money off. Yeah, for sure. So yeah, run parallels. And the other thing, if you are a very dedicated Mac user and maybe you you aren't into running the parallels, um, there is an app for Solifier called Astro Gold. It doesn't have as much as the Solifier software, but it will still do a fair amount, especially if you're sort of more in that student space. I think you could probably get a lot of what you need from the Solifier Astro Gold app. Now that is not a $5 app. From what I understand, it's like a $50 or a $60 app. Um, but it's certainly going to be cheaper than buying the entire software if price is also a factor for you. Um, and Chris, I'm like you, I'm a dedicated PC gal. So yeah, Kenneth Miller is someone I know who uses the power. He actually showed me when I was out visiting him last year when I was in San Diego. He's like, yeah, you can do totally do solar fire on a Mac. This is how. And he's like, you create this alternate universe. So yeah, it's doable. And right. and I guess what we're saying, Chris, is the, the Solifire software is so good that it's worth going that extra step to use it regardless of whether you're on a Mac or a PC. Yeah, honestly. I mean, I think there are some other programs. I know Time Passages is one piece of Mac software. I'm just not fully familiar with it or, or know if it has all of the same capabilities as Solarfire. Um, and I don't know as many people that use that compared to Solarfire, even the ones that have Macs. So you know, you, you can look into it and do some research. And I know all of them are moving towards cross compatibility at this point. But as far as I know, that's that's what I, in terms of our friends, that's what I know that they do. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. All right. Awesome. We did it. Well, that is the Q&A episode. Thank you, everybody, for submitting questions. We got through about, I mean, we got through about half of the ones that we had planned to answer. Yeah. Maybe a little bit more. And we got through a very relatively small percentage of all of the ones that we received. But nonetheless, thank you, everyone, for sending them in. We really appreciate it. And I may schedule a follow-up Q&A episode at some point in order to get to the rest, uh, maybe next month or the month after, but we'll see what happens. If you guys enjoy these Q&A episodes, and definitely let me know. That way I know that I should keep doing them. I'm never quite sure if I should you know, go crazy doing the Q&A episodes or if I should hold off from time to time. So feedback is always appreciated. Thank you, Kelly, so much for joining me today. I really appreciate it. Oh, my pleasure, Chris. Thanks for having me. I'm just glad to, to, be, um, to be available. So it was good. Yeah, uh, definitely. I was definitely wanting to and needing to do an episode. And so I really appreciate you making yourself available for this. And it's always good to talk to you, especially since I missed you last month for some of those bonus episodes. That's, yeah, it's good. Thank yeah. you. Um, and people should check out your website for more information, which is kellysastrology.com, right? Yes. Thank you. 
All right. Brilliant. All right. Well, that's it for this episode. So thanks everyone for listening and we'll see you next time.